Okay. Recording. Good morning. Good morning. So, um, just a, by way of quick reminder, we um, we're talking about apologetics. Our goal here is to encourage each other to know what we believe, why we believe it, and then to be so we can be ready to engage with others in conversation about it, not in an academic debate, but the far more likely scenarios of talking with friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors, conversations come up. Newsweek publishes some dramatic new, you know, revelation this Christmas, uh, Christmas and Easter, that's when you see these news stories come up. You know, and somebody, your uncle or aunt or cousin or somebody wants to ask you about it and well, you go to church, what do you think of this? You know, and, mm -hmm. and being ready to talk about some of these, these questions. Um, wanted to review what we talked about a little bit last week. I know most of you were here, but talked about why we can trust the Old Testament. So just by way of review, right, we can trust, uh, first of all, we can trust that we have the right words. When we're talking about the Old Testament only, we can trust that we have the right words. Uh, first, we talked about the fact that the scribes were very precise and careful in how they copied the documents, very aware of the fact that they were writing, uh, copying the Word of God. Second of all, we have the evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which showed that the, this incredible stability of the text, like very little change over a period of more than a thousand years. Um, then secondly, we can trust that we have the right books. So how can we trust that we have the right books? We talked about that broad division of the law, the prophets, and the writings that was referred to frequently by Jews and then by Jesus and the, um, and the disciples. Uh, there were fact that there were no real debates ever about the inclusion of the first five books of the law. Uh, and the pro fact that the prophets quoted each other frequently as speaking from God and referred to a scripture. And then we talked about the, the Apocrypha, like how do we know then that these 39 books are just those and we shouldn't, how do we know we shouldn't be including others? A number of really good reasons for that. Uh, Jesus only quotes from the 39 books of the Old Testament as we have them, never from the Apocrypha. The other New Testament writers only quote from those 39 books as being scripture, although, you know, like Jude has a, some allusions to some other books. Uh, Josephus only quotes from the 39 books of the Old Testament. Uh, and he also speaks of there being, he says 22 books because the way they divided them up differently, you know, all the minor prophets were one book for them. Uh, Philo, who was another Jewish philosopher and writer at the time, only quotes from the 39 books. And remember, this is the main Old Testament that they have was the Greek translation, the Septuagint, which included all of this apocryphal material. So it wasn't like, well, they just didn't have it in front of them. They had it in front of them. They had it available. They were very aware of it. But they chose not to quote it in the same way as they quoted other scriptures. So it was a very conscious decision. The Jewish canon only ever included uh, the 39, always excluded the Apocrypha. The early church fathers generally only ever used the 39 books, uh, not the Apocrypha. Jerome, the translator of the Old Testament into Latin, one of the most significant early translations of the Bible, he only used the 39 when he would go back to the original texts and he said, look, these are the only books we should be using. He did translate the Apocrypha, but begrudgingly, and was very clear in his translations, like, you can read these, but these are not to be considered at the same level. 
Um, now, Augustine disagreed with, with him on that, and there were debates that kept going in the Roman Catholic Church uh, all the way up until the time of the Reformation. Uh, and even at the time of the Reformation, there, there were still Roman Catholic theologians that we talked about last time who felt that this apocryphal material should not be used for establishing dogma doctrine. But then, of course, at the Council of Trent, uh, Roman Catholic Church formally declared the Apocrypha to be part of the canon, adding these extra books. But the, uh, the, so we can have confidence that the 39 books that we have are original and authoritative, and uh, we shouldn't be worried that we're missing something, for sure. And if you want to read the Apocrypha, you can. Uh, it's fine. I mean, interesting, but not the Word of God. There's only 38 curses that will be laid on you by doing so. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fine. Well, I'm, I'm in big trouble then. So. Um, what we're talking about today is the reliability of the New Testament. So we, Old Testament last week, this week we're talking about the New Testament. I, I bring books frequently to class because I want to show, like, Michael and I don't just magically know all this stuff. Like, like we're not walking encyclopedias. <laughs> We, library. we, uh, we are, yeah, we're librarians. <laughs> That's what we really are. Um, I magically know anything. Do you magically know stuff? I don't know. Magically I know. know I, I didn't, yeah, but not this stuff. Yeah. Um, I have so many on this topic of canon and the reliability of the Bible. There's so much good material, and we're just kind of distilling a lot of it down. A lot of people have written a lot of really good stuff. And if it's something you want to dig into more, there's amazing resources out there. If you like reading, if you like watching stuff, uh, the Gospel Coalition has a four-part um, lecture series by Michael Kruger, who's a really great speaker and professor of New Testament. He's written more on this topic than anyone else I know. Michael Kruger on the Gospel Coalition, he has a four-part um, they call it like a course on the, the reliability of you know, how we got the canon and arguments for it and against it and everything else. Um, so that's like four hours of material if you want to dig in more, if you want like videos. So there's lots of great things. But um, So why are we talking about uh, New Testament? Obviously Jesus is at the center of our faith, right? But, and everything that we know about Jesus almost everything that we know about Jesus comes from the New Testament. So we need to know, like, can we trust what's in our New Testament? I mean, everything that we're doing here is based on that. I mean, what if it's just a collection of myths and fables? What if there's other books and materials that we don't have that are being kept from us? Was there a real historical Jesus, or is this like a, a, a legend? Um, how reliable are the documents we have? How do we know they haven't been corrupted over hundreds of years? Maybe the Roman Catholic Church is keeping a whole set of other books secret somewhere. You yeah, know. Brown is all over that. I know, yeah. Um, <laughs> because if the New Testament can't be trusted, then we're kind of in a rough spot with our faith. And this is, like I said at the beginning, this is not just so that we can be confident in what we believe and why, but also because it comes up all the time with other people. The Da Vinci Code and then... Christmas and Easter every year, um, constant misunderstandings and questions about how the New Testament came to be uh, the way it is today. And you need to be equipped to answer these questions. And uh, again, the reason I show you these book stuff is you're probably not going to necessarily be able to internalize everything we talk about here this morning. <laughs> Michael and I have gone over this 
material like so many times in different contexts that it comes more naturally to us. But that's only because we've studied it over and over and over and over again. And there's lots of great books and resources on this. So sometimes it may just be as much as knowing like, oh wait, there is an argument against that. Um, I'm gonna go dig that up and I'll get back to you. <laughs> like it doesn't sound right, but I can't remember exactly why. Um, so uh, can we trust the New Testament? One of these books here, uh, this guy, uh, Nathan Busnitz, Reasons We Believe, 50 Lines of Evidence That Confirm the Christian Faith. He, and I meant to print, I had a Word document printed out and then I left it at home. Uh, so uh, he gives 10 reasons we believe the New Testament Gospels are reliable. And we're not going to go through all 10 this morning, but we're going to go, I'm going to read them to you and then um, uh, I can send you the Word document so you don't have to scramble to get it all down here. But I'm going to read you the 10 and then we'll go through them um, in varying levels of detail based on our time. So he said, first, for these uh, 10 reasons, uh, because they're consistent with previous, we can trust the New Testament Gospels because uh, they're consistent with previous revelation from God because they were written by those closest to the events of Jesus's life, because they were intended to be historical, because they contain details that could be tested and verified, because the early Christian community would have demanded an accurate record, because their picture of Jesus is consistent within the four Gospels, because their picture of Jesus is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. So four Gospels and then also the, the whole New Testament, because the main points of Jesus' life are found in non-biblical sources as well, um, because they are superior to other supposed Gospels, and because they have been faithfully preserved throughout church history. And it's that last one that probably uh, most often comes up in like Da Vinci Code and, and other uh, settings. But I want to go through, through these. Um, we won't go in detail on all of them, but um, so first he says, because we can trust what we have because these Gospels are consistent with previous revelation from God. So for those of you who were in the Biblical Theology class last semester, so much of this ties in with that. We see the Bible as a unified whole, Old and New Testaments, not to say that there are no differences between them. There, there are significant differences. It's hard sometimes, but the Biblical Theology really helps us to see Old and New Testament as one single revelation from God. And you see this with the incredible way these themes travel from beginning to end without gap or bridge or, or jump. It's really astonishing. Actually, I feel like it would be, humanly speaking, extremely difficult to concoct this over the amount of time that the Bible was written to have such intricately woven themes um, connecting Old and New Testaments together. Um, I mean, we have all, uh, not just the, the themes, but do you remember a few years ago when we were talking through, uh, uh, was it Luke? And then we had um, a PowerPoint slide showing all the quotes, like a rainbow, <laughs> but it showed like all the quotes and allusions linking the Old and New Testaments together. So we see this incredible consistency between the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, can, and displaying this, cons this uh, 
consistency with previous revelation from God. Now, that's not going to convince a non-Christian that we can trust the New Testament. Uh, like, oh, it quotes the Old Testament. Big deal. All right. Well, you have types and anti-types. Uh, I don't even know what that means. But when we're thinking as far as you know what you believe and why you believe it and how you can have confidence, it should bring a lot of confidence that the New Testament is reliable and faithful because we see this consistency with everything that was laid down in the Old. Um, now, secondly, he says, we can trust what we have because they were written by those closest to the events of Jesus' life. So why would this be important? Why would this matter? He says we can trust these because the, the Gospels, because they were written by those closest to the events of Jesus' life. You okay, Steve? You want some water? or? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, can they, they would have more, uh, more of a first-hand accurate witness, less room for Right. Uh, yeah. If we want to know what happened during the War of Independence, right? We want to hear from people who were around at that time, not people today. Yeah. Inventions, exaggerations, and myths can be quickly debunked by people with, uh, you know, similar experience and exposure. So people who are closer to the events could say, "No, that didn't happen." Yeah, that's like a secondary. The, right. That's like a corroborating. Like, <laughs> so Kenny's like, "Hey, I was here. I was there. I can." Tell you what happened, and then you're like, and I can confirm what she said too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The longer do you go after an event, the harder it becomes to remember. You contrast that with someone like Muhammad, whose earliest writings are hundreds of years after he died. So you know, there's all sorts of narratives and myths and stuff that that were able to be injected. But yeah, it, it's really incredible. So critics will sometimes say, "Well, we don't really know. I mean, who knows what." what Jesus' life was really like, because that, all that was written hundreds of years later. That's actually just not true. Um, it, so um, we have um, Timothy Paul Jones. He tells the story of this church leader named uh, Serapion. Ser Serapion? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. We'll go with Serapion. Um, so he's living around 180 or 190 AD. So towards the end of the second century. And he heard about a church that was reading a book called The Gospel of Peter. And as he re read it for himself, he realized this is not good. We need, they should not be reading it. It's a fake. And writing to the church, he said, he said this. He said, we accept the writings of Peter and the other apostles as we would accept Christ. But as for those with a name falsely ascribed, we deliberately dismiss them knowing that no such things have been handed down to us. So, we can learn a couple of things from this. First, there was clearly already uh, a set of writings that they assumed and took to be scripture, that they were working from. He said, you know, we have these writings of Peter and the other apostles that we accept as we would accept Christ himself. So, we're going to get at this a little bit later when we talk about the, the canon, which 27 books, but clearly it's not something that was developed later because already 180, 190, they're working off a set, he doesn't define it for us clearly, but a set of, of books, writings that they accepted as being the word of God, like accepted, we accept these as if we would accept them from Christ. 
And then secondly, we, we learned that there were criteria that they used for affirming books, and that was their connection to the apostles, right? He said, uh, I, we, we reject the books that can't be connected to apostolic witness about these events. So, so going along with that in terms of the, there was actually even at that point a standard by which they were able to evaluate uh, a case in point of what we were previously talked about with regard to Serapion. If we were in 181 AD and you were to say Serapion and they said, no, it's Fred, <laughs> you know, you're, you're pronouncing it wrong. Oh, we, right. can, we can get away with Serapion now because we're over 2,000 years later. He's not here to tell me otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Nobody else who knew him was around. Right. And so that's that's an obvious case in point. We'll go with that because we have no other option. It seems to make the most sense to us. That is no way to determine the veracity and historicity of anything, mm -hmm. let alone Serapion, the pronunciation of his name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I said, that, look, these books have to be connected to... Uh, apostolic witness. Uh, there's another document written um, around the same time called the Muraturian Canon. It's actually not just like a list, but it uh, includes a discussion of, of a whole lot of different stuff. Uh, and they were discussing whether or not they should include a very popular piece of writing that was included at the time, not in a canon, but the question was like, should these texts be read out loud in the church? That was their question. Because that, like, in other words, I've got all these different things, and which one should be read out loud in church? Because that infers like authority. This is the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. And there was a book called, uh, or a piece of writing called The Shepherd, and people were debating should we read this out loud in churches or not? And they concluded that although people could read it personally, it shouldn't be read out loud. And they said this it is counted neither among the prophets for their number has been completed nor among the apostles for it is after their time so it says it's not part of the old testament because that's closed going back to our conversation from last week they they recognize like that canon is closed it said it can't be counted among the apostles because it's after their time like this book was written like there's, there's no way to connect this book to apostolic witness so it cannot should not be read in churches and can given authority and weight in the life of the church um, so it doesn't define the canon there but it says a book has to be tied to an apostle so I mean some some jump ball calls that ultimately were, were closer calls I think are like Clement or the Didache right. um, which, which, for the reasons and the standards that were established, were rejected. But nevertheless, I mean, we we embrace Clement's writings as legitimate, just not authoritative. Yeah. You know, the historically relevant, and we're glad to have them. Same with the Didache, because it gives us some eye of the liturgical practices of the time. Yeah. Isn't that Didache? Sure. I, I think it. Yeah. Didache, whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. Malachi. Malachi. <laughs> um. Whatever. They're not here to It's say. a hibachi, so why is it not malachi? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Oh, dear. Um, so this Muratorian canon, the end of the second century, they, they, they say, look, it has to, the Old Testament canon is closed, and the New Testament books, they, they need to be connected to an apostolic witness, and there's no way this book is, so it shouldn't be authoritative. And they also did list books 
that they thought would should be read out loud in churches, which was included all our books of the New Testament except for Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, and Third John. So this is again right, right around the end of the second century. They're already sort of affirming what books uh, should and should not be read. Anyway, so the point being here, authoritative books have to be connected to the apostles. So were they? Well, we have um, Irenaeus of, of, of Lyon. He's writing around 160 AD. So he's, according to him, he says, Matthew published his gospel among the Hebrews in their own language, while Peter and Paul were preaching and founding the church in Rome. After their departure, Mark the disciple and translator of Peter, passed down to us in writing those things that Peter preached. Luke, the attendant of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel that Paul declared. And afterward, John, the disciples of the Lord, the disciple of the Lord, published his gospel while living at Ephesus in Asia. Um, so he says, look, Matthew, uh, Matthew, like the disciple Matthew was writing um, while Peter and Paul were still alive and preaching. Uh, Mark, not a disciple, but he's commonly referred to as the translator or uh, recorder of Peter. So Peter is really giving that gospel, that information. Mark is uh, credited with writing it. Uh, Luke, tra the traveling partner of Paul, recorded his gospel. And then uh, John, uh, published his gospel while living at Ephesus in Asia. So you say, well, that's kind of late. Well, we have earlier uh, records from um, Papias, who was a church leader, uh, apparently a friend of Philip's, potentially a friend of, of Philip's four daughters, you know, in Acts, Philip's. Mm -hmm. So potentially even um, Papias was friends with them. Uh, he confirms all that. I mean, very close now to eyewitnesses at the time of the first century. Uh, we have a letter written by Polycarp, or another church leader, in 110 AD, so even earlier. I mean, if you think about John, uh, I mean, Revelation, probably potentially written maybe like around AD 90 or something mm -hmm. like that. So here's Polycarp, maybe 10, 20 years, 20 years later. Um, he identifies Ephesians as being scripture. I mean, he refers to Paul's writings in Ephesians as being scripture. So, and, and finally, this is also really interesting. We have the, the, the geographical argument, if you will. So, um, the four Gospels were unanimously, from a very early time, attributed always, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is true, so, okay, you have Jerusalem, right? And then everything started there, so uh, what we find is we have copies of documents, not just from around here, but from like all over the Mediterranean, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And all these copies are all, wherever they're located, all attributing the Gospels to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's not like, oh, well, the copy over here in Egypt, you know, a thousand miles away, they're like, well, this is like Bob and Larry and whatever. I mean, they didn't, 
Well, this is actually the gospel of Thaddeus, or this is justice, like, like this is his gospel. It's always the same, and within such a short period of time. There wasn't time for, there, it wasn't like, well, 100 years later, or 200, 400 years later, um, from a very, very, very early time. Um, so that also is that any, any apparent uh, copy errors or whatever can be harmonized with great confidence because of the early and wide dispersions of them in different languages. Right. And so, right. so right. Exactly. it allows us to be able to resolve any kind of translation errors and, and clarification. We find that they're, they're small and they're not relevant to doctrine anyway. Yeah, which we're going to get to, yeah, more. Yeah, but that, the geographical piece is, is really key for a lot of these arguments to recognize that uh, there's unanimity, not just locally in Jerusalem, because you could say, well, what about the believers in Rome? Maybe they had a whole different thing going on. You realize, no, from a very early stage, it's exactly the same wherever Christianity spread. So the third reason we can trust uh, these documents is because they were intended to be historical. I mean, this is the whole opening of Luke's gospel, right? He's <laughs> like, I am trying to be as detailed as possible. I've collected eyewitness reports. I've talked to these people. I've interviewed them. If you read Luke, I mean, it's just packed with minute historical data that's very specific. And we talked about this a little bit last time. But there's all kinds of dates and places and names within um, Luke and Acts that you know, initially people sometimes thought were mistakes. And then as historical evidence has come out, they've realized, no, actually he's recording very accurately what was happening at the time. Now, it is true to say that history, historians today and the way they work is different than the way historians worked and operated in the first century. Like this, just culturally, and I mean everything is it, it, there is a difference. But according to the um, standards of the time, and uh, they were intending to write in a historical, what we would call historical uh, manner, compiling evidence, uh, conveying accurate information uh, along the way. Uh, fourth one we'll skip it is that you know says because they contain details that can be tested and verified you have that in Luke and Acts among others but uh, so many of these details can be matched and um, verified with archaeology and, and other data points uh, fifth reason he says we can trust these documents is because the early Christian community would have demanded an accurate record so how many people joined the church on Pentecost yeah, uh, and thousands more afterwards, right? And so as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and others are writing, they're very aware of the fact. <laughs> I'm not just writing for people in some distant future. I'm writing because there are literally thousands of people who are needing and wanting an accurate record of the events that they happen. And as Dan, as you said earlier, thousands more who can either corroborate or refute what we're actually writing. I mean, very easily. Yeah, I mean, it's like Jesus, or, or when they're uh, on the Emmaus Road, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus confronts them and they're like, oh, how could, have you, have you not been paying attention to everything that's been happening in Jerusalem? And he's like, well, you know, 
somewhat aware of what's been going on, you know. But but the point is, like, this is like a huge deal. It's very very public. Um, so Jesus' ministry the, the, and the, yeah. the, the uh, skeptic would say, yeah, but the but the the, the church uh, destroyed all anything that, that tried to counter that. Except that not only did did it not, but we have examples of non-Christian authors, whether it's just uh, uh, Tacitus, Suetonius, what have you, yeah. who also corroborate. They don't they don't set up refutations. Everything that they say endorses. Well, it doesn't necessarily endorse, but it it doesn't it doesn't uh, seek to refute or call into question the accounts as, mm -hmm. as documented. So. There, there's plenty of non-Christian uh, extant documents that could have provided a refutation but did not, and there's no evidence. You know, that's just a, a narrative. There's no evidence that there was ever any kind of destruction, as there is, for example, of Muslim leaders who gathered together all the extant Qurans, destroyed them, and rewrote it. You know. Yeah. And so, yeah, go to the British Historical Museum to be able to see. Some of the original yeah, and um, uh, there was some book burning that happened. So we we do have evidence that, for example, after the Council of Nicaea, they did gather together the books of Arius, who was condemned as a her heretic, and burned them. But he wasn't he wasn't counted. But that's very different. So, but uh, so there was some of that that happened. She is what 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 the conspiracy theorists and and. The skeptics will do a little take little bits of truth and then they mash them together and and with a lot of conjecture well, what if or how do you know you know and, um, so there were some cases where they so they took Aris's books and they burned them didn't really matter because Arianism kicked right back in shortly after that but um, another interesting thing is we have you say well oh well they they burned all these other supposed alternate gospel accounts. Well, we have not just, we're not just talking about the books of our Bible. We also have, we're going to talk about this later, but thousands of quotations and citations. You know, we're talking about a church community, right? So what do we do? What do Pastor Mike, uh, uh, Michael and I do on Sunday mornings? We, we're preaching, but we're constantly drawing well, you know, there's this verse from Isaiah, and here's this verse, and we're, we're quoting scripture constantly, even in our meetings, right? We're quoting scripture. Uh, and so the early church fathers and pastors, they're doing the same thing. They're, in their letters, they're quoting scripture, in their, uh, in their sermons, in their writings, constantly. Not just the Old Testament, but the books that we consider to be part of our New Testament. They're quoting it as scripture. So, and you say, well, they burned all these, even if they had burned everything, then we have the evidence that in the early church, they weren't using these other books. Um, so, uh, Clement of Alexandria, um, he quotes hundreds of times from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, a number of Paul's letters. I mean, like hundreds and hundreds of quotations. Of all the apocryphal material, he only quotes, has 16 quotes from apocryphal material, which he never cites as scripture, by the way, but he, he does use it. But So that doesn't tell you that, prove anything, but it, sh it shows you even by the level of citations that like, these are really, th these are scriptural, these are authoritative. 
And I'm, I'm aware that these others exist, but even just in that quotation usage, it's clear there's a huge difference. And so for me, that kind of undermines the idea that, oh, there's this whole other body material that was sort of excised from history, because there's no evidence to show that anyone was using that. By citation alone, it's my understanding we could reconstruct uh, accurately upwards of 90% of the New Testament just on the early church fathers' writings. Yeah, I've, I've uh, yeah, I actually just, so uh, Jay Warner Wallace, right? If you guys heard of him, Cold Case Christianity, yeah. he's a big apologist. He did a deep dive on that, and um, his conclusion was that's not actually true. Um, so that's, he's not sure exactly I'm where that came from. I know, I'm sorry. Damn me, I know this. So he said, but he said, um, he did say, he said we could. It's Mythbusters. Yeah, this is Mythbusters in here. Bible Mythbusters. We should have a show, Bible Mythbusters. I think Josh McDowell says like 19,000 different citations. I mean, there's a lot for sure. And it is a key piece of evidence to show that they were quoting and using books of our canon without defining it as a canon. Mm -hmm. Let's back it up a little bit. There's a misconception that there was some shadowy council of secret sort of hooded people who in a dark room that cooked up the canon as we have it today and determined thus from this point forward this will be our canon and it's really not true it never ever happened but what they were doing was really affirming a canon that was already in use by the church so um all these quotes and citations give us evidence that there was this existing body of material that they were saw as being authoritative because it was connected to the apostles and they, they were using a canon before it was even necessarily called a canon. But um, J. Warner Wallace says, just from the non-canonical works of Ignatius and Polycarp and Clement, we can determine the following facts. So, um, Jesus was predicted by the Old Testament, as described in the New Testament. Um, Jesus is divine, as described in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples. Jesus worked miracles. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived, ministered, was crucified, and died, and he rose from the dead, uh, demonstrating his deity. So if, if all you had was those books by Ignatius and Polycarp, you could determine pretty much all the central doctrines, key details of our faith affecting the gospel. Um, so th there's really a lot of information we can get from that. And it sometimes gets skipped over in our conversations about canon, this huge amount of other material that's being pumped out by these early pastors and leaders who are ministering to these ever-growing flocks of people. You know, I mean, if, if Michael had a, a blog you know, and he's trying to minister to his people. He's going to be constantly quoting from the Old Testament and the New Testament and cranking out, pointing people as part of his discipleship, right? And the, the pastors at the time were doing that. So they didn't need to say, well, these are the 27 books. You can just tell by what they're using, how they're doing it. Did you, will you want to add something? Okay. 
it's safe to say it's fair to say that any room that they met in was going to be dark because they didn't have electricity. Oh, all right, so I want to talk a little bit about the uh, this preservation, how the documents were preserved throughout history, because you know, there's this comment. Have you heard people say, "Oh, it's like the telephone game." Have you heard? Yeah. You know, the telephone game. Like I whisper something to you, and it passes around. By the time it gets to Michael, it's going to be completely garbled. And they're like, "Well, how do we know? How do we know that's not what happened to the Bible? I mean, it was copied. We don't have any of the original documents. It's just been copied so many times." So many mistakes and errors introduced along the way. How can we possibly know it's the same book at the end? And it's, it is true. We don't have the originals. And it is true. We all we have are copies of copies of copies. I'm not going to deny that. Um, uh, and although we have like uh, 5,500 Greek manuscripts of parts or of the New Testament, there are um, hundreds of thousands of variants. In fact, um, Bible critic Bart Ehrman, he's famous for making this quote. He said, uh, there are more variants, like discrepancies between all these Greek manuscripts. There are more variants than there are words in the New Testament. There's like 400,000 variances, differences between all these Greek texts. And there's only 138,000 words in the New Testament. There's like, throws up his hands. He's like, it's garbage. We can't trust anything. 400,000 discrepancies. But, and that's true. Like, like, he's not making that up. But the real question is, like, how many of those really are significant or matter? And Dan, you alluded to this earlier. Uh, how many of them change the meaning of a sentence or change doctrine or anything that we believe? So many of them. In fact, the vast majority of those variants are um, punctuation or, you know, the word the is included in this document and it's not included in this one. Well, and if, or, and if it's two documents, then, you know, that's significant. If it's... 200,000 documents, it become in the amount of content in them, it becomes, you know, a rounding error. Right. And so we, we see, like, you see misspellings or sort of typos. You see, like, something is plural here or singular here. Um, and all this information is available to anyone who will, it's not hidden or secret. Um, it's studied, debated, you can read papers about it. Um, if you had a, most Greek, uh, like Carson was here last year, and he would always bring his Greek New Testament more frequently. And at the bottom, it'll list like the really important variants, like differences between the many, well, this manuscript says this, and this manuscript says this. And so you can compare them uh, and see that. And some of them are important, but the incredible thing is we have 5,000 plus documents and when you sort of sift them all out, the um, agreement between them is astonishing. I mean, like really incredible. There are minor differences, but once you get rid of the punctuation and misspellings and skipped words or a word order got reversed because somebody's writing and they, they say it backwards in their head, um, you realize there's incredible agreement across these 
manuscripts. And it gives an enormous amount of confidence that the text that we have is accurate. Not just, and then it goes back to that geographical accuracy, because these copies, you would think, well, maybe, you know, the copy in Rome would be like really different than the copy that we have in Jerusalem. And there are differences, but, um, but incredible um, similarity. I mean, clearly the scribes who were copying these documents were very aware that they were copying the word of God and had to do so with utmost accuracy. It's, um, it's really incredible. And then, so we can test these documents geographically. We can also test them chronologically and see over time for the texts that are used for our current English New Testaments, we're going to favor, generally speaking, older documents, ones that were closest in time to the first century. But we can balance that against copies that are more recent as well and see this text has remained largely stable um, over time. Um, yes? Are you going to talk about text types too? I wasn't going to. Do you want to bring that up? Well, so Jonathan has been mentioning the fact that there are geographically all these different copies, and they're broken up into four major groups. There's Alexandrian text types, which are from North Africa. There's um, Byzantine text types, which is from near Byzantium, etc. There's Western text types that are up further like Rome, etc. And then there's, I, I can't remember the fourth category, is it Jerusalem text types? And maybe Brennan, you can help me out if you remember. But there's four text types. And <clears throat> the Western text types tend to be more distant from the time of Christ. So, and they also tend to have uh, what are called pious scribal editions. So they will change Jesus to Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not changing the meaning, but it, it's an addition of a word that probably wasn't there in the original. And so you have the King James Bible was translated from Western text types, which is why sometimes you'll see folks who are in the King James only uh, camp say, well, your Bible removes all these times it says Lord or all these times it says Christ. But what's really going on is that the King James Version was translated from texts that were older, mm -hmm. or newer to us, but more distant from Christ. And the better manuscripts don't contain those. The earlier ones, the ones that were probably more accurate to what was original. And that's that's the reason why um, modern Bibles don't have some of these instances where so you don't need to get tripped up if you know like some of the history of why we have certain translations of, of the Bible. And there's a whole there's a whole academic discipline called text criticism that that's all they do is these scholars look at these different variants and they're trying to assess what's original. And they're looking at both external and internal evidence to decide. So when you, when you read, when you have like a Greek New Testament, if you have the 
there's different versions you can get, but the scholarly ones have, it's called an apparatus in the bottom. And it'll, as you're reading the Greek text, it'll say, it'll put a little footnote, and then you look down at the footnote, and it'll say, these manuscripts have this, the, the text, the text is supported by these manuscripts, so the one that we kept is supported by these manuscripts, then these other manuscripts are supported by, or have this. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason why they've made a decision to go with what they went with, and it's, you know, they make this evaluation. We can be very confident that we have the original, um, and it's just like Jonathan said, uh, the changes are minor. There are some, some that are important, but many of the ones that we have can be put down to like pious <laughs> scribal editions as well. I just think about Bart Ehrman though, and the difference between sort of an intellectual honesty and from a person, but also like someone who comes at this with faith and someone who comes yes. at it without faith. Because to me, it's, it's, it's intellectually dishonest to, to yeah. say something like, well, there's 400,000 changes. We can't trust anything. But if you just stop and say, well, most of these are punctuation or slight spelling changes from plural to singular or set, nothing that changes the meaning, yeah. you immediately begin to recognize He's not coming at this from a position of faith. He's coming at it from a position of deep skepticism. Well, he's trying to justify his walking away. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. So, so anyway, so I just... Uh, probably one of the most significant ones is at the end of Mark, Mark's resurrection account. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, our Bibles are honest, mm -hmm. where we think that there have been changes. They're, they're put in parentheses, and if it's a study Bible noted... Suggesting the earliest manuscripts omit this, or mm -hmm. what have you, and so I, th I think also what is it? there's a passage in John, yeah. John, John eight. eight or something yeah. like that. But yeah. see, take those out or leave them in, the gospel is not impacted. Yeah, exactly. Nothing changes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't think of any doctrine. You know, we are through systematic theology. Uh, nothing that we taught in there would change. No court Christian doctrine I mean, yeah. changes or hinges on any kind of scribal change or right. variant between the manuscripts hmm. at all. And honestly, I mean, if you went like going back to earlier that the Muratorian canon, uh, you know, and it didn't include, I forget those books now, where is it? Um, they didn't have uh, whatever James and Hebrews, first Hebrews and first, second Peter. And third John. I mean, even I think those should be in the New Testament. I think is is good a reason for that. Even if you took those out, again, we're not uh, our faith is not undermined or left in tattered pieces <laughs> as a result. Um, so for, for for James, the controversy was over. You know, faith without works is dead, and so. Um, seemingly to call into question uh, salvation by grace through faith. And then Hebrews is because the authorship was uncertain, but the Greek that's considered the best piece of Greek writing that in, in the New Testament, as I understand, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to hedge myself, so I'm going to pose these as questions rather than statements. <laughs> so the, I guess the, que the question would be then, what, what, why, are, why is there... Canonicity called into question 
for Peter and Third John and mm-hmm. Hebrews and James? Uh, that's a good question. I'll have to get back to you. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I know, um, yeah, i have to get back to you. Like, why were they uh, not uh, sort of accepted right away? I don't know. Um, I mean, Revelation was questioned for a while, too. Um, so, uh, and I think Jude, um, so it's a good question. Um, and some of it is conjecture, like we don't, <laughs> it's going to be hard to, to determine why, but I can look into it for sure. Um, but just just going back to, so the the idea of this you know telephone game you know this myth oh well this is how the Bible is transmitted it's just like the telephone game you know the the purpose of the telephone game the point of that game is to mangle the message like that's what makes it funny and nobody's actually really trying to you know preserve an accurate message but the time when the for the authors of the New Testament and for the copyists the purpose was to preserve the message accurately mm-hmm. and and the message that they were copying could very easily be verified by because of when they're writing i mean this is all happening in the first century there's still so many eyewitnesses alive and the message could be verified every time they're making a copy people were around and be like wait a second <laughs> that's not right uh that's not they gotta the church down the street their copy says something else i mean Joking, super significant. but um, they're operating within a context where uh, the message could be confirmed repeatedly over and over again. Um, they had originals that they could copy and measure their copies against. So it would be more like if every stage of the telephone game, I share it with Rita, and when Rita goes to Candy, Candy comes back to me and says, Hey, is this? What I heard Rita say is this, is that right? You know, and I could correct her. And then she tells Dan, mm-hmm. and Dan's like, I'm not sure I heard that right. And Dan came back to me or maybe went to you and asked you. Um, there was that kind of feedback loop happening constantly. Um, it's hard for us to think about that because we're 2,000 years down the road. Mm-hmm. But in the first, second centuries, this is what is happening all the time. So like I told you earlier, Serapion, he's... He hears about this other thing happening at the church down the road, and then he reads it for himself, and then he goes, and he's like, wait a second, no, stop. Stop, 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 stop reading this out loud. It's not true. Um, so they had um, ability to correct, self-correct, yeah. How do you know that? How? Oh. Yeah, that they were doing, I mean, that's, that's a fantastic argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there, like, support for well, we have examples like Serapion, who is a pastor at the time, and he is there. There's this uh, interchurch dynamic going on where they're aware of what's happening in their region, um, and they're reading. And these documents are going around, and he hears about them reading it. He's like, "Wait, hold on a second. And then there's a delay while he has time to read it for himself, and then he reads it, and then he sends another letter saying, "Don't." And by the way, I'm also going to come and teach on this. So there's an awareness among the early church fathers that they had a sort of responsibility to care for the congregations, not just their own little church, but in 
their region too. So we have indication of that in their writings that they're correcting and self-correcting. They didn't have uh, backspace or whiteout <laughs> back then, so when things were written, you know, you might you might have had an addendum with edits, you know. I think, but yeah, maybe not whiteout, but they had. Um, there are, I want to say there are erasures in some of these documents, and you know they're overwriding things. There's marginal notes. Yeah. I was thinking as you were teaching that if somebody's trying to get out of believing, they can shoot holes in, in anything they want. Absolutely. But you can see the need for the Holy Spirit to be operating even if you're good, good at arguing. The Holy Spirit has to be operating in the person to whom you're speaking. This goes back, uh, uh, we'll get to your question in a second. This goes back to the very first class. Right. Like, I can present all the evidence in the world. Yes. Like, it's not going to necessarily change, you know, turn someone's heart. Like, God is one who's going to open someone's heart. They need to be confronted with the gospel. Um, and if someone's determined, like Bart Ehrman, I mean, he lives in this world. Like, he, he understands sexual criticism. He knows Greek. He is very versed in all this data. But he is just choosing to spin it all in a way to undermine Christianity. More evidence isn't going to sway him. Um, God's going to have to get a hold to turn his heart. So absolutely. And if, that's, so this, is, this is an important thing for us as we think about apologetics on this particular question. The idea that there are thousands of copies and manuscripts out there is sometimes argued like Bart is, is arguing that this is a bad thing, right? But it's actually the opposite. It's a very good thing. It, it gives us great confidence. Same with same with um, Muslims and the Quran. Uh, they want to say like, well, there's only one copy. There's only ever been one copy, but the Bible's been corrupted and changed, and you have all these different manuscripts, but we only have one. That's actually it's the exact opposite. It's if you have just one, that's easy to change. If you have a moment where, like, you've destroyed everything but one, that's a that's a bad thing. That's not a good thing. So the fact that we have all these copies is is excellent. This is great because this is what allows us to go back and make the comparisons and actually do the study, do the work. Um, so we just have to be careful that you know we don't get tripped up by. There's the there's the sort of like arguments that Pastor Jonathan is making, but let's not leave aside logic Amen. <laughs> here. There, there's a logical argument that connects to this, and the logical argument is no, you're drawing a a bad conclusion from the evidence. Amen. It's these are the, the fact that there are thousands of copies is good, not bad. But that that is a logical argument based on to tie in with sort of the evidential argument that you're making. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. More evidence is better. Yeah, and along those lines, like the idea that there's this whole, you know, the church uh, burned all these books that had the truth that is now hidden from us. Um, It's hard to believe when we have so many 
copies from so many different from so places. many different places and like you were saying in and then translate we haven't even got any translations and translations into other languages yes. yeah so not just greek documents but we have them in in syrian and, coptic. and coptic and all these other languages so now it's like one stage removed and it's still accurate and then we also do have apocryphal material and we don't have time to get into that today but these sort of lost gospels and um, gnostic gospels those those are not hidden <laughs> like we have those we can read those we can study them you can see why there's no way how vastly different they are from anything else written in the new testament why nobody has ever included them um not because a church you know some pope was like these are banned um but because there's no connection to the they're written so much later there's no connection to the apostles and they're so wildly bizarre that it's clearly um, a different type of writing entirely. Brendan, you had a question you were going to ask earlier. This is a little bit in a different vein, but I was thinking so if, you, if we're seeking to talk with an unbeliever and convince them, which we've shown that there's all these earlier, earlier manuscripts, we have a lot of early ones, is it, would it in the vein of the early church would have demanded an accurate account, do you think it's reasonable for us to mention just like the suffering? of the early church in that as well because in my mind I was just thinking like people are dying because of these texts and so like they would have needed to know what are we dying for what are Amen. we suffering for um, is it reasonable for us to bring that up or is that kind of like not that important, not that yeah I think that, that's super key I mean this goes back to um whatever one of the first points was uh their um early church wanted an accurate they needed an accurate record of what was going on you have thousands of people new converts coming to faith and shortly after being persecuted for it <laughs> and there's absolutely a, a sense of um well, and they and they didn't die they weren't killed for something they did they were killed for what they believed yeah right. like, am i dying for a legend or a myth or for something that actually happened right uh, it's one of the key arguments for, in my opinion, for the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. I think Paul even says, like, when he's going to Rome, I'm on trial because of the resurrection. Uh, it's because of the resurrection. I mean, like, it, yeah. You have these guys who bail on Jesus when he dies. <coughs> and then you ha and then they all are willing to die mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they saw the resurrected Jesus. Mm -hmm. And they knew... They, then they knew, right? They spent 40 days with the resurrected Jesus before he ascended to heaven. Mm -hmm. Right? So how do you differentiate between that? So, and that, that's important. Yeah. But you know what I'm going to say. Go ahead. Maybe. How do you differentiate between that and people who are dying today uh, for their Muslim beliefs? Yeah. The, the differentiation is that they died because they would not renounce what they claim to have seen and heard as opposed to Muslims today are, are dying because of what they are being taught to believe. Yeah, in the There's a, okay, so. Yeah, I mean, I see, as believers, we know that. But if you're trying to convince someone who doesn't believe, how do you make that argument? No, no, what Dan is saying is absolutely essential. So the, the, the key difference is that you have Christians who are dying and have died through history for their faith. Amen. But those Christians weren't eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it would, the, to make a parallel argument, 
you would want to go back to like the people who were originally writing down the Muhammad's writings. That would be the parallel argument. I see what you're saying. Like Apple's people, friends. people today, people today are willing to die for their Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Yes, and they're young that doesn't too. necessarily prove that it's true. Correct. It proves that they're serious about their faith, faith right? Yeah. But we're talking about men who, who. In their own words, I mean, like they're recording their own. It'd be, I think it would be very easy to be like, yes, and we believed immediately, and he rose from the dead, and we carried on in our most holy faith. And, you know? Yeah. But instead, it was like, no, we were all a bunch of cowards, a bunch of chickens hiding in a room, freaking out for our lives, you know? Like, and then, on the flip side, they're 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 going toe to toe with the same people who killed Jesus, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And they were willing to die for that. That's different because these are the same. These are the people who are saying we're eyewitnesses of these things, mm -hmm. and they're recording it, right? It's also different because, as you said, they're they're dying for they died for what they believed, but today they are dying for what they are going to get. Correct. That's true too, but I mean, it's not just what they believed. They died for what they saw and heard. Like, like what we die for what we believe, but have not seen and heard. They died for what they believed because they had seen and heard. Like they they touched the risen Jesus. They ate meals with the risen Jesus. It's a, there's a there's a categorical difference there. Does, does it make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for, again, for the believer, we understand that. Yeah. But non-believers don't, and so if we're talking to them, and they say, yeah. well, what about, I would want to be able to, you know. I would, I, would, I, would, well. I would put the ball in their court to say, you just witnessed uh, 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 um, the murder of your child. You saw it, you know, with your own eyes, and now the murderer is up on trial, and you saw the murder murder your child. And now there's death threats against you to say, to renounce your testimony of what you saw. Go ahead, you know, now make your choice. It's, the stakes are, are like that. It's, mm -hmm. you're going to die if you tell the truth. You're going to live if you lie. And, but the stakes are even higher there because, as Michael said, they lived with Christ. They, they were ministered. They were healed by him. They, they, they saw all of these sorts of things. Yeah. And, and. Remember that little drawing that I did where we had all the arrows pointing to yes. the circle, mm -hmm. but none of them connected? Mm -hmm. We'll just keep coming back to the fact that we're going to have, in any conversation apologetically, we're going to have good reasons to believe, but we're never going to be able to prove beyond doubt. And so there's going to have to be the work of the Holy Spirit, regeneration, and faith that God gives. Like God gives all of these things as a gift. Amen. We're talking to dead people spiritually. Spiritually dead people. They cannot believe. They cannot reason on their own to Christ. Correct. There must be a work of the Holy Spirit. Right. And the Spirit can work through some of these arguments to help overcome obstacles. But, but the onus is not on us Correct. to solve it all. Correct. It's to show that it's reasonable to believe but the spirit has to work the spirit has to regenerate them 
and God has to give them the gift of faith, then they're not going to get that from our arguments ever. But we, but we, that doesn't preclude us making the appeal no. and say, I can't put you in the shoes of the first century believer, right? But I can provide you an analogy that should hopefully put you in the emotional space with which they were confronted with life and death. Well, yeah, it's that, and it's a whole bunch of other things too. But I mean, we want to, we want to show what we're saying as Christians is very reasonable. Right. We're right. All of these arguments are. They're, they're doing something. What are they doing? Well, what they're doing is saying they're undermining any claim that faith is blind faith. Mm-hmm. They're showing that, that genuine faith has a real object, and the object of our faith is trustworthy. So, so there's something going on in the midst of all of this. It's not simply about sort of proving that the Bible is trustworthy or proving, you know, whatever. God is at work in the midst of all of this, but we're trying to show, no, no, this is this is actually very reasonable. And what we would say as Christians, that the Christian worldview uh, is far superior and the only consistent one. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, that's the case that we're building with all of these different pieces. And this is just like a slice of... I mean, we said this last week. We're, we're, we're presenting, in the last two weeks, arguments for the trustworthiness of the Bible, but we're, we're only giving one argument for that, essentially. There are other things that we would want to add into the mix, right? And even that is one slice of a, a broader, you know... But all of this is to show, no, it's very reasonable uh, to believe these things. But at the end of the day, we're going to come back to the place where we, we better be on our knees. Amen. I especially think of the young kids that are in jail over in Pakistan, 16 years old, and they're sentenced to death, and they're going to die. Yeah. And that's the Lord worked in their hearts to make them believe because it, they didn't go to any apologetics classes or anything. It's the Lord's work that yeah. makes them able to ready to die. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> it can play a part, um, but it's not going to necessarily convince anyone. I did, I did want to just say, because this issue about the Council of Nicaea and Constantine comes up all the time. And this is something, it may not convince a non Christian to put their faith in Jesus, but we can help. Uh, erase or do away with just bad art like just these are just lies like Nicaea was a council and Constantine was involved but the only things that happened they made a ruling on the date of Easter he didn't invent Easter or force people to celebrate Easter they came up they just kind of formalized a date for it uh, they condemned the views of Arius and uh, ordered his books to be burned. Um, and that was it. They had a lot of discussion about other things, but nothing about the canon. Like, they had a creed Yeah, but th- there was no decision, or from this point forward, Constantine had no role in the formation of the New Testament or the New Testament canon, like zero. Now, if people don't want to believe, you know, they want to say, well, the text is corrupted, or I don't believe in Jesus, all that fine 
but this is just like a matter of history. It's just it's just false. And it was I, I don't know. I was reading about this. Um, it goes back to maybe the eighth or ninth century. Somebody came up with a myth that at Nicaea, Constantine put the all these different books uh, on on a table. Have you heard this one? He put all the potential candidates for canonical status on a table and they prayed and they came back the next morning and the books that God wanted them to keep remained on the table <laughs> and, oh and the apocryphal garbage ones fell to the ground. Oh It'd be cooler if they were, were burned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Piles of ashes on the table. <laughs> like, here's so, a book. Here's a little pile of ash. Oh, not that one. <laughs> so then... That view was kind of came up again in the 1600s, and then Voltaire got a, ha a hold of it, and he was he pushed that same theory. And then Thomas Paine, yeah, he sorry was he grabbed a hold of it potentially from Voltaire, I don't know, and he was pushing the same theory, and it's kind of worked its way into. But we have a list, um, so Origen writing around 250 A.D. He um, gives the full list of books that we would ha include in our New Testament, all 27, around 250. And not in a, I therefore proclaim yeah. these books to be the canon, but he's writing about other stuff and he just includes. He's like, well, these are the, the sacred writings that we include. All 27, around 250. So this is before Athanasius, before Nicaea, before any of that. So, um, yeah, so people don't have to believe in Jesus, but we do have, they shouldn't believe these myths and lies about Nicaea and Constantine, who gets lumped with everything, everything bad, and just is like, well, well Constantine cooked this up. But it's like, well. And that, that, that becomes, uh, for, for the non believer, that becomes a, well, a pox on all of them. The heck with all, why, why even bother? Yeah. When you've got when you've got myths that are rising up to to debunk or to supposedly undermine that which is sound and legitimate, and and the the irony is that and we see this today that those who are who are advancing the myths are are calling it calling the legitimate stuff a myth. Right. Right. And we see that today yeah. where people say yeah. you can't trust your history. You know, it's all mythical. It, it didn't really happen that way. You know, look at what I just wrote. What I wrote is authoritative because I just yeah. wrote it last week. Yeah. You know, never mind about those people 250, 300 years ago. They don't know squat. And so that's, that's, that's the irony of, of this whole thing that people who were writing contemporary at the time, people could have refuted it then and they didn't. They, in fact, they supported it and, and advanced it and so forth. And so the, the arrogance, I think, of trying to look back with that with that mindset, but that's because we're fallen, we're, we're fallen people. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to believe that, those things, because it disturbs us. The implications are unsettling. Yeah. Well, we are fallen and we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Yeah. I've heard that somewhere. Yeah. That, that's, that's catchy. <laughs> I think I, that's Romans. Um, there's obviously a lot more that we could talk. I, I, we could talk about 
translations is a whole fascinating thing like how we got the KJV and so many different English translations now um, as a this topic is huge we could spend a whole semester but um, if it's something that's interesting to you there's so many good resources Michael Kruger has so much stuff available online Timothy Paul Jones it's very accessible um, and it's an important topic to familiarize yourself with. Even if you don't have all the details in your head, at least be aware of, oh yeah, there's that. Oh yeah, I've heard that, 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 uh, skeptic, that argument before. I know there's a, an answer for that. Uh, so you can answer it. Yeah. And we're susceptible to it in the church today, even with the people who are KGV only, for example, for some of the points that were made with regard to oh, there are changes, and they, they remove stuff, and what have you, and when in fact, no, it's actually that. How about you be Hebrew and Greek only? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Early manuscripts only. That was, that was, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, let me pray. Um, let me get to church. Lord, we are so thankful for the way in which you uh, saw uh enabled your words to be preserved and kept for us Lord down through history uh, we're so thankful that after 2,000 years we can still read and trust that these words we have in front of us are truly the word of God the words spoken through the apostles through your son Jesus Christ mm-hmm handed down carefully to us oh, we thank you for that gift more than that we thank you for uh, the gift of your son Jesus Christ and, and the message that we receive through this word message of forgiveness and new life in Christ we pray Lord that you would help us uh, not just to study this as a topic or read it as something interesting but to consume this as as a word of God meant to transform us and Lord that you would help us through the power of your spirit to to live as faithful followers of Jesus we pray this in your name amen, amen. thank you is it K-R-U-G-R? yeah